Welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. I'm TJ Daw, and this season my co-host Mario Sikora and I will be exploring the Enneagram through the lens of specific directors whose work demonstrates themes related to the nine Enneagram types and three instinctual biases. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. All right. Hello, everybody. This is Mario Sakura, uh, back with the latest episode of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, season two, talking about the directors. Uh, we are talking about Steven Spielberg and Enneagram Type 7 today. As always, I am here with my co-host, TJ Dahl. TJ, how are you? I'm very good. How are you? All right. And we have a special guest today that we're both very, very excited about. He was with us in season one as well. And, you know, he's a, a legend when it comes to the Enneagram in movies. It's, of course, Tom Condon. Uh, Tom, who is the author of, amongst many things, Enneagram Movie and Video Guide, uh, which I highly recommend. Tom, how are you doing today? And did I get the book title correct? Yeah, you did. All right, great. So how are you, Tom? Uh, walking and talking. I might be a little hoarse. We're enveloped in smoke right now. And I'm in central okay. central Oregon, and everything nearby is on fire. Gotcha. But you're okay where you are? Oh, yeah. Good. And I'm glad to hear you're walking and talking, but please don't walk off during the middle of our podcast. Okay. Um, okay. You're, you are invited to talk as much as you wish, however. So, Tom, so we're looking forward to this session. So, again, the idea of this podcast is to talk about the body of work of a director in each episode and talk about how we think that body of work reflects one of the Enneagram types. Okay. Now, we're not necessarily claiming that we think a particular director is absolutely a particular Enneagram type, although I think with Steven Spielberg, it's a pretty safe bet, but, you know, we'll come back to that. But what we're more interested in is how that, uh, you know, the themes of that Enneagram type are reflected in the work. So we're going to talk about four movies of Spielberg's. Obviously, Spielberg has made a whole, whole bunch of movies, and, you know, it was tough to pick just four, I think, but I think we picked four we wanted to talk about that span a wide range of his career, and we're going to talk about why we think Spielberg is a type seven, etc. Okay, those movies that we're going to talk about are Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jurassic Park, and Catch Me If You Can. Okay. TJ, tell us about Enneagram type seven, please. Gladly. So type seven is known by a variety of names. Riso Hudson calls type seven the enthusiast. Palmer Daniels calls seven the epicure. Mario Sakura in the awareness to action model refers to strategy seven as striving to feel excited. So sevens have this impulse to feel amped up, to feel excited, to feel kind of turned on by life. So that results in a number of different behaviors and aspects, among other things. Sevens are often really spontaneous. They're quite often good at multitasking, they're fun-seeking, freedom-loving. They often have a forever young feel, the kind of Peter Pan thing, which is kind of pertinent to Spielberg. Uh, they can be really charismatic, uh, sometimes the life of the party, but there's introverted sevens as well. The sevens usually have an accessible, unpretentious way of being. They have a desire to entertain. They often are the bringer of fun or the bringer of joy and can take this on almost like it's a role that they have to fulfill. They can be prone to exaggeration, because why should the truth get in the way of a good story? 
they're really quick-minded. They think really fast. And one of the results of this is they're quick learners. They make connections between disparate topics. They're often, they know a little bit about a lot of different things and can find a way to synthesize those things. It's not unusual for a seven to be an early adopter of new technology. And they make great collaborators. This is the kind of the average portrait of a seven. The less, the more maladaptive side of seven involves running from pain, not being comfortable with feelings, difficult feelings at least. Moving on quickly from anything that they don't want to feel, believing that they process difficult events when they really haven't. Uh, if there's good stuff in life, give me more, more, more of it. And of course, the more I take in, the less effect it has. So what am I going to do then? Take even more. As sevens go down the level, they can get more impatient. They can get angry, kind of scolding. Uh, they can get really scattered and distractible and have a hard time finishing what they start. And there can be issues with hedonism and addiction. When sevens are more present and have done their work, you can see a lot of the idealism of sevens. You can see that's it's kind of the the light side of the darkness that comes across in the impatience and the anger. And there can be a real ability to stick with something and to get into the zone and to really geek out on it. And they, this is a paraphrase of something Russ Hudson said, sevens at their best show us the spiritual in the material world. So that's a brief overview of seven. We're going to see, going to embody a bunch of these things with examples from Steven Spielberg's life in the four movies that you mentioned. Great. Tom, what else do we need to know about sevens? Well, I'm not sure. When, when I did a lot of research on Steven Spielberg, and actually I wanted to address the fact that you can type somebody from afar, even if you don't know them. What you need is enough information, and you have to just sort of keep going at it, and you have to know what the difference is between a clue and a conclusion. But Spielberg was actually pretty easy. The yeah. sevenness came out... For example, in the there are a number of sevens who have disjointed resumes. You know, record producer, then they taught Tai Chi in Hong Kong, and then they moved to Canada and became a coal miner. You know, and what you read over their their history and uh, things are disconnected from each other. And I find that true with Spielberg. Actually, the, he yeah. does have some themes that are consistent. There is a kind of a sentimentality and a style that runs through his movies, but he's actually saving Private Ryan and West Side Story. He just did. He just did a movie about uh, Ready Player One. It was about being trapped in a video game. These things sort of have nothing to do with each other. They're skillfully rendered, but they're also disjointed in this way that I associate with Sevens. Some of the comments about him are that he falls in love with actors, not romantically exactly, not you know running off with them, but that he just gets sort of hypnotized and gets sort of uh, entranced by someone's talent. And this, for me, goes with the sexual subtype in Seven. People call that different things, one-to-one. -one. I forget yours, Mario, the... Transmitter? Transmitting. 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 I never much care what it's called, right. but it's it's kind of typical. The Not just the falling in love, but also the aptitude with stories. The My experience, if somebody's very dominant in the, the sexual subtype in seven, 
they think in stories. <laughs> I know an author who is a, a fiction author who talks that way in real life as well. Everything is a story. Everything, you get replies, but the replies are, are stories. And Spielberg's talked about having so many ideas that he doesn't know what to do with them. It's a little like a quote right. from uh, Bach, who said, when I get up in the morning, I have to avoid stepping on the pieces of music that I'm supposed to write. And Spielberg described this one time as an elephant graveyard of ideas and extra stories. He's actually misused the phrase elephant graveyard. That means a place where old warriors go to die. But what he meant was, that I've got all these things lying around, and I can't possibly do as much as I want to do. And he's done a lot, too. If you go on uh, the Internet database, he's had his hand in a lot of productions, not just directing, which he's done quite a bit of as well. Yeah, and he was one of the founders of DreamWorks. That, you know, was, yeah. Right, he was yeah. one of the founders of DreamWorks that produced movies as well. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the thing that stands out in a number of his films is what I would call positive counterexamples. And we'll get to that a little bit later, where there's a framing device or the whole subject of the film is some sort of positive exception to the awfulness of history or uh, some other context or situation. All of those things are kind of part of it, but they don't, you know, just because I say it doesn't mean it defines it, but it, researching him, reading about him, watching interviews and other things people have written about him, it, it was just a no-brainer. Yeah. Well, look, I, I agree. I mean, I think that it takes about five minutes of watching an interview with Steven Spielberg to say that guy's a seven, right? And in preparation for this, I did watch a few interviews. There was one on 60 Minutes where, you know, they were showing him in his office and he had video games in there, you know, the big machines, you know, so back in the you know 90s or something. And they referred to it as he's like a kid at the playground in his office. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, Spielberg exudes that sevenness, I think, in his persona, right? It's, again, he's not somebody that's difficult to assess the Enneagram type of. And I agree with you, his, that diversity is reflected in his work. Uh, one of the things that TJ and I talked about when we talked about Clint Eastwood was that you don't see a visual theme in his movies, right? You could be watching a movie, and if you're just seeing it and you're not familiar with it, you're not going to say, oh, that's a Clint Eastwood movie. I can tell by looking at it, right? And then we went to the other extreme talking about Wes Anderson, where the complete opposite, right? I mean, when you lay eyes on a Wes Anderson movie, you know it's a Wes Anderson movie. Spielberg is interesting because there are all these technical repetitions that you will see. Right. Lots of rearview mirrors, for example. Right. Lots of sunsets, lots of you know, different effects. But, you know, Schindler's List, you know, Munich, Saving Private Ryan, E.T., the kids movies like Hook or, or whatever, the, the diversity is tremendous, right? So um, I absolutely agree. He's recycling genres. Also, there's a lot of that, right? So I was re-watching the movie Duel the other day, which was his made-for-TV movie that I actually remember watching 
as a kid mm -hmm. on television. Yeah, TJ, I'm that old. And because uh, it was 1971, and I remember it. And because it had such an impact, right? And it was basically Jaws with a truck, right? Or right. actually, you know, where he would say that Jaws was, you know, duel with a fish or, you know, a shark. So absolutely, there's not only recycling of themes that he's interested in, but redoing things that have been done with a little bit of a right. twist, I think. Remakes, in a way. Yeah, not literal remakes, but yeah. Right. And lots of homages, particularly in his early work, you see a lot of influences of different people. You see Hitchcock, you know, for example, you'll see, you know, some references to some, you know, Kurosawa kind of movies and that sort of thing. So, great. Uh, other themes that are interesting to me, and Tom, I'm, I was curious about your opinion on this or your any observations you might have. One of the themes I noticed, you know, that many people talk about actually, is the theme of absentee fathers and missing father figures in so many of his movies or replacement father figures. But I didn't get the sense from watching interviews with him that he had any, you know, that he had, you know, a father who was not around or anything like that. Is this something you see in Seven Stone? Well, I wouldn't overgeneralize it. In uh -huh. I've heard people say, you know, well, Sevens, it's a problem with the mother, you know, but... Yeah. That just deletes their individuality, basically. I'm very cautious about those sort of things. Yeah. And right. uh, But I have seen it. I know you don't do wings, but I've seen it in Seven with an Eight Wing over and over again. Problems with the father, an absentee father, a need or a requirement to step into a, a vacuum in the family right. that establishes, that is parental. Uh, one friend of mine had about five brothers and sisters, and he was the eldest, and the father was a reclusive five who didn't say much. And my friend had to, you know, kind of step in and bridge various gaps. He had, you know, brothers and sisters he was responsible for. But also, you know, there'll be... Like another seven said, uh, well, you know, my life was going well, sort of like a four. My life was going well until a drunk driver killed my father. And I've been, you know, <laughs> angry about it ever since. That kind of thing where there's an absence of the father or there's conflicted fathering or something like that. I've seen that as yeah. much as I've seen sevens addicted to their mothers or, uh, you know, to female supply, so to say. Right, right. Yeah, so again, I, I, I agree with you that we always want to be careful about attributing childhood origins to Enneagram type and making too many assumptions based on that. I, I was just rigidly. curious about what you had observed. Rigidly, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, And there's a dif difference also, by the way, we go back and interpret our childhood versus what actually happened to us, right? So, um, mm -hmm. you know, we never know what's going on in somebody's head unless we ask them. So, and we haven't had the chance to ask Mr. Spielberg about his father issues. So we'll just have to shelf that for now. He does talk about them. Oh, really? Okay, good. Tell me about that then, because I didn't find that. Go ahead. Yeah, there's a documentary on HBO called Spielberg, where he mm -hmm. goes into that. And part of his family lore is that his parents split up when he was a teenager and for decades, he believed that it was simply a matter of his father leaving the family. And his father was a computer engineer. They moved frequently for the father's work. And he described his father as being kind of the traditional dad who'd fought in World War II, brought home the bacon, came home, and was pretty absent. 
but you know, faithful and yeah. hardworking. And then when his parents split up, there was no actual explanation for it. Decades later, he found out the reason his parents split up was that his mother had fallen in love with his father's best friend. So his dad yeah. just kept quiet about this and they had no relationship literally for decades. So Spielberg, instead of dealing with the pain of this, as seven sometimes do, you know, and there's feelings I don't want to feel, what am I going to do? Make movies. I'm going to do something to distract myself. So something he said in an interview about his childhood, he said, when I didn't want to face the real world, I just stuck a camera up to my face and it worked. Hmm. And then of course he sublimated this with all these absent fathers in many of his movies. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're foreshadowing uh, Catch Me If You Can here with this uh, mom and dad theme. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. A couple of things before we move on to the movies uh, specifically, a couple of uh, points I want to make about the seven. Absolutely, this idea of moving away from pain is something that is a theme of sevens and absolutely a theme of Spielberg's. I would actually say that that's one of his shortcomings as a filmmaker Mm -hmm. is this inability to sit with ambiguity or sorrow at the end of a movie, right? I think it his two, uh, for me, most, you know, accomplished works are Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan. And I think he diminished both of them by tacking on these kind of overly sentimental or melodramatic endings as a way of, deal, of dealing with that pain. Yeah. So I, I absolutely think that's a point. Movies <laughs> like that, he does several endings. Schindler's List had mm-hmm. a couple of endings. And the other one, yes. a film I rather liked, actually, called Munich, he did the same thing. He did a, a, kind of a couple of endings, and, you know, that sort of, in a broader way, indicates he doesn't trust his audience. But at the same time, he's right. he's done pretty well. So, who am I? Yeah, I, I want to say for us to sit here and critique some of the nuances of uh, Spielberg's filmmaking is, you know, we don't want it to seem a little too petty because the guy is clearly a brilliant filmmaker and an amazing artist and a huge success. So for what it's worth, um, and one other and thing we're is losers. Uh, a misconception. And we're losers. <laughs> I, I didn't want to go quite that far, but it was implied. Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, we're guys sitting here talking about Spielberg's movies rather than getting out there and making Spielbergian movies, right? So, <laughs> all right. So another thing is, uh, you know, a misconception about Seven. I want to clarify is this idea that they are always happy and always looking at the bright side of things. That is a public persona, but as someone who lives with a house full of sevens, it is not the reality, right? You know, there are many sevens who suffer from depression. 
persistent frustration is kind of a hallmark of a lot of sevens, you know, dissatisfaction with the moment, which is one of the things that keeps them striving for the next moment in some way or seeking excitement somewhere else. So I don't want to, you know, go out of this introduction with this idea that sevens are happy all the time and everything's positive and wonderful. There's a counterpoint to it. There was an award-winning pastry chef who was a seven, and he said, I basically see the universe as a dark, oppressive place whose sense of menace is alleviated by pastry. And, uh, that that kind of captured it, you know. And there's another side to it, which is the, the pain that you're trying to get away from and the degree to which yes. you are compulsed to get away from it is an indicator of your, yes. you know, feeling that you can't handle the pain. Yes, yes. And the frustration that, wait a minute, this pastry was supposed to make my existential dread go away and it only did for a short time but now what am i going to do that's right yeah right all right so first movie 1975's jaws jaws is a movie that redefined the movies in a lot of ways right it was the first big blockbuster movie that had a you know, uh, that really changed how Hollywood operated at that time, right? It was a relatively low-budget movie, $9 million, and made a huge amount of money, including my $3.25 when I I went to see it in the theater at the McDade Mall. And Jaws scared the bejesus out of me. I mean, it is... I read a, a, you know, one of the reviews or, you know, some appreciation of Jaws that said it's the most perfectly realized horror film. And I typically hadn't thought of Jaws as a horror movie. I would just think of, you know, Freddy and, you know, slasher movies and all that sort of stuff. But it is a terrifying and suspenseful movie, right? Certainly was for my 11-year-old mind. I mean, I didn't go in the water for I don't know how long. So so I'm going to give a quick overview of Jaws and describe the plot for anybody who has not seen it. Spoiler alert here, as we as with all these movies, Jaws is, what, 46 years old? If you have not seen it yet, I do not feel guilty telling you that, you know, the, the shark dies at the end, okay, in a dramatic fashion, all right? But this is the story of one big old shark that is terrorizing vacationers on the shores of Amity Island, a stand-in for Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. The movie opens with a skinny, dipping young woman being killed by a shark, causing police chief Martin Brody, played by Roy Scheider, who wants to close the beaches, but Mayor Larry Vaughn overrules him, as do the town business people, fearing that the loss of tourist revenue will cripple the town. Despite the urgings of ichthyologist Matt Hooper, played by Richard Dreyfus, I believe that an ichthyologist is a dude that studies sharks, and I know that TJ is going to have some Richard Dreyfus stories here, that, uh, or you know, at least an experience that we'll come back to in a moment. But uh, despite Hooper's urgings, Brody backs down uh, about closing the beaches to his regret, as that very weekend a young boy is killed by the predator. The dead boy's mother puts out a bounty on the shark, and Amity is soon swamped by amateur shark hunters and fishermen hoping to cash in on the reward. A local fisherman with much experience hunting sharks, Quint, played by the luminous Robert Shaw, offers to hunt down the creature for a hefty fee. 
uh, starting off that offer with probably the most famous fingernails on the chalkboard scene uh, ever captured on film. Soon, Quint, Brody, and Hooper are at sea hunting the great white shark as Brody succinctly surmises after their first encounter with the creature, they're going to need a bigger boat as the trio engage in an epic battle of man versus nature. And for me, this is interesting because it's not just, you know, man versus shark as the man versus nature part, but it is population, right? Growing human populations impeding on the natural habitats of nature and the animals in it, right? There's a line where they talk about, you know, all these bodies swimming in the water make for the perfect, uh, you know, buffet for a great white shark uh, where, you know, sharks used to roam or have always roamed for millions of years. But it also explores some other battles, commerce versus public safety, right? Do we, you know, make sure that people have a livelihood or do we protect them? Okay. This is something that has gone on in society for a long, long time. And modernity versus tradition. Okay. So we have a Quint's approach to hunting sharks versus Hooper's approach, for example, right? And uh, that thing. Uh, some good, I think, really good character studies here in there. Not, not character studies, but, but good acting jobs, right? I think that, for example, Robert Shaw's telling of the story of the Indianapolis is amazing, right? I mean, that scene where they're having that conversation in the boat is really, really incredible. I think Roy Scheider's really good. I think uh, Richard Dreyfus is great. The John Williams score has to be commented on as one of the classic film scores, that two-note tuba, dun, 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 you know, that everybody is so familiar with. And lots of famous lines. When I was watching Jaws in preparation for this, my 12-year-old walked through the room just as we got to the, you're going to need a bigger boat line. And he stopped and he said, oh, is that where that comes from, right? Because he had something he had heard so many times all these years later, okay? So guys, tell me about Jaws. What, what, what are your thoughts on Jaws in general as a movie? Let's start there. I think it's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, go <laughs> yeah I didn't see it until my early 20s. And it was a couple decades later before I saw it on the big screen, but it's incredible. It really takes a source material that you'd think would be a B-movie and makes it into one of the best movies ever made, quite honestly. And you're right, it was a sensation and it holds up extremely well. And one of the things in it that really shines for me as a big hallmark of Steven Spielberg's directing and a big link to him being a seven is just how much energy there is on the screen. I was first exposed to this movie with clips of it in a documentary about cinematography called Visions of Light, the Art of Cinematography. Michael Chapman, who was one of the camera operators, and it talked about how they deliberately filmed a lot of shots right at water level to make you feel like you were in the water and you were in equal danger from the attack of the shark. So there's a bunch of scenes of like people scrambling out of the ocean. Or there's scenes when, you know, as you mentioned, all these amateur hunters are going out in their boats to try and catch the shark to get the $3,000 bounty. Or there's a scene when you know the three main characters are on the boat and they're chasing the shark and like there's great movement and energy across the screen and a lot of it just it's pretty much impossible not to get caught up in it and that's a motif you see in a lot of Spielberg movies is like movement across the frame just done choreographed in a way that just gets the adrenaline going and always combined with the music of John Williams he's been his composer from the start and Spielberg has no trouble at all just 
turning up the volume on the soundtrack music and saying, let's get the audience roused. Let's get them cheering at the end of this movie. Yeah, great. Tom, thoughts on Jaws? Well, I mean, to me, it's a remake of An Enemy of the People by Ibsen. That's what mm. it's based on. And as such, it's not particularly seven-ish in terms of the, the overarching themes for me. Richard Dreyfuss right. pretty well stood out as a, a seven-ish character. Yeah. When I've analyzed actors in movies... I usually make the distinction between, oh, well, that person's a seven or that person is seven-ish. And I thought between the three of them, you had Roy Scheider playing the audience, but he was also six-ish. You had Richard Dreyfuss, and then you had Robert Shaw playing kind of an eight. And <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it was an adventure in an old-fashioned sense. And it was kind of perfect. There are certain movies to me that are perfect, like uh, District 9 or uh, that South African movie about mm -hmm. uh, the aliens. Yeah. yeah, the aliens invading. And it, it was like that. I mean, it was very precise. And also, like, they had trouble with Bruce the shark. And so what they wound up doing was not showing it very much. And that actually worked in terms of the right. suspense and the horror movie part of it. I think, you know, it's interesting about that kind of uh, necessity being the mother of invention when it came to this. Because the thing that makes Jaws work so well is that you don't see the shark. And you didn't see the shark because they couldn't get the darn thing to work uh, in the ways that they wanted it to. I was reading that the producers actually wanted to train a great white shark to be in the movie, but were quickly disabused of that notion. Right? So <laughs> I don't know what genius had that idea, but uh, you have so, enough money and power, power you think you can do stuff like that. <laughs> All right. Uh, so it was one of the first, uh, I think it was the first major movie to be filmed on the ocean to the extent that it was, right? That hadn't been done before. And, but yeah, so I, again, I don't think that there's a seven ish theme to it, but the energy there is something that, you know, a seven would generate. I agree. I mean, as I watch these four movies that we're going to talk about, for me, the standout was Jaws, right? I mean, the others, you know, I love to, to varying degrees. But, you know, for me, I hadn't seen Jaws in a long time, but I'm watching it and I'm thinking, this is just a damn good movie, right? I mean, this is just, you know, perfectly constructed. It's compelling. It moves. There's really not a dull moment in the movie that I could think of, right? Mm -hmm. In the other movies, you know, there were some things, yeah, we could have got rid of that or whatever, but in Jaws, it was perfectly constructed. So I agree with you, Tom. Brody was a six-ish sort of character, and Hooper, I, I would also say, was kind of a seven, and I agree that Quint was a pretty eight-ish sort of guy. TJ, you had a bit of experience with Richard Dreyfuss. I'm curious, did you see him as a seven? Do you see him as a seven in real life? I don't know enough about Yes, him. I do. I worked with him personally. I stayed in his house and worked with him on a career retrospective multimedia show, which I ended up moderating in London two years ago. Mm. And my impression of him mm. personally, and I did talk to him about the Enneagram. I ended up gifting him a copy of The Wisdom of the Enneagram. I strongly believe that he's a seven. And it's interesting that Spielberg in the 70s said that Richard Dreyfus he considered to be his alter ego. Right. Like his kind oh, of a representative of himself. Interesting. So, yeah, he's yeah, very yeah. spontaneous, very quick thinking, 
when, when asked, he was asked by an audience member in that career retrospective we did if he'd ever be interested in directing a movie, and he said no. He said he's much too impatient. He doesn't like the fact that he would have to spend a few years seeing it through from start to finish. He's an actor, and even though he's in his 70s now, pre-COVID anyway, he was doing upwards of five movies a year. So again, burning wow. the candle at both ends, like just a man of tremendous energy and a great love of what he does. And I think that shows some of the high side of the seven too, which we see in Spielberg as well, is he loves acting. He just loves it more than anything else. The way Spielberg loves directing more than anything else. Mm. And there's nowhere that yeah. either of them would rather be. Great. Robert Shaw, I think, I don't know that I've ever seen him play anything other than an eight in a movie. I don't know, Tom, you, you're probably more familiar with his movies. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'd have to look it up, but he had he had quite a bit of range, actually. And he did mm. play eight-ish roles in Jaws and From Russia with Love, for example. But he yeah. had other sides to him. And he was very driven. He made a lot of movies died of a heart attack at age 50. Uh, so yeah. it was... Yeah, yeah uh, apparently he was difficult on the uh, set. You know, he was drinking a lot. He was rambunctious. Apparently him and Dreyfus really did not get along, which, you know, actually made it work well for two characters who weren't supposed to like each other. Uh, not actually true, according to Richard Dreyfus. Oh, really? that, okay. The rumor of that really pisses him off because the two of them were quite fond of each other. Yeah. He even talked about doing the production of King Lear together, where Shaw played Lear oh. and Dreyfus played the fool. He said they did have one disagreement at one point, but it was resolved, and that in, this, in the famous monologue that you mentioned where he talks about going in the water when, when the USS Indianapolis blew up, he decided to do it drunk, and they spent the whole night yes. filming, and it did not go well. And he showed up the next day chastened, hungover, apologetic, and fully professional. Yeah. So there's a lot of rumors about these things because they make good, good stories. But uh, <laughs> said they well, I'm going to keep telling well. that story. Yeah. Ne next time this comes up, I'm going to tell the same story <laughs> that they didn't get along with each other because, you know, it's a better there story. Is, but, which is very uh, seminar. <laughs> all right. Good. A couple more thoughts about Jaws. Let's see. A absolutely kind of a Moby Dick theme in this, right? Uh, with Quint sort of a habish kind of character. I thought there were some Hitchcock homages as well, especially the scene you, you made reference, TJ, to people running, you know, out of the water with the camera at, you know, water level. That felt very Hitchcockian to me. It made me think of, of the birds, right? Of just this feeling of panic and disorientation from the camera. So that was interesting. There was an interesting story I saw online. The boy on the raft who gets eaten and then his mother being the one who confronts Brody and offers the bounty. So there's a story that several decades after the film's release, Lee Fierro, who played Mrs. Kintner in the movie, the mother, walked into a seafood restaurant and noticed that the menu had an Alex Kintner sandwich on it. Okay. She commented that she had played his mother so many years ago. The owner of the restaurant ran out to meet her, and he was none other than Jeffrey Voorhees, who played her son. They had not seen each other since the original movie. That's very, very interesting to me. All right. Let's see. What else? According to one thing I saw, the line, you're going to need a bigger boat, was ad-libbed 
by Roy Scheider, which was, again, one of the all-time brilliant ad-libs. And they had to go in, after they tested the movie, they had to go in and add a few seconds between when he sees the fish and when he says that, because people were so, you know, in shock and, you know, screaming about Jaws that uh, they didn't hear the line. So a little interesting bit of trivia. Yeah, along those lines about that being ad-libbed, something I read in a contemporary interview is that when they started filming, they had basically no script. They had very little, Mm. but they had three excellent actors, and they would quite often rehearse the night before with uh, somebody transcribing what they were saying, and that's what would comprise the script of the next day. So that really bolsters the case for Spielberg being a seven with the flair for improvisation. There was just a lot of like, okay, this is what we did today. What are we doing tomorrow? Let's figure it out, and let's figure out when we get there. And problem solving like that, as you mentioned, the mechanical shark not doing what they wanted. It's like, okay, then... um, I guess we're going to have to figure out something else. And he would pull something much better out of his pocket at the last minute. Mm. So there was this quote that he said in an interview at the time. He said, in this one, there are surprises every day. Every day something new happens. Every day something gets fucked up, but it's exciting. And he said, marvelous accidents happen on the set. Actors have suggestions. Technicians have suggestions. A passing stranger might have a suggestion. And I think the director should keep his mind open every day and and not get trapped by the kind of homework he falls in love with on the eve of shooting the actual scene. And I think it's interesting that the resolution of the movie comes from an improvisation in that Quint's plan to harpoon the shark doesn't work and Hooper's plan to use sophisticated technology to poison the shark doesn't work. What works is the brilliant pulling the solution out of his pocket of Brody at the last minute out of available materials, which is an analogy for how Spielberg made the movie in the first place and how he's made the best of his movies throughout his career. Supposedly, he went into the storming the beach at Normandy scene in Saving Private Ryan with no storyboards, no forethought whatsoever. He just got there, and for the two weeks that they filmed it, or three weeks or however long it was, just said, okay, let's figure this out right here and now. And same with E.T. He said, no storyboards, no plans, just like, let's do it. Let's find it. So he Mm -hmm. pulled the brilliant solution out of his ass at the last moment, like sevens often do. Very good. Interesting. And that's talent, too. It is talent, yeah. I mean, if I was to show up at a movie set where, <laughs> you know, with no storyboards or script, it would be a very different result than Steven Spielberg doing it. So, um, great. But yeah, again, for, for me, if our listeners pick one movie to watch of Spielberg's, this is the one, I, I think, or at least of these four that we're talking about. There's some other great movies, but Jaws is just really a perfect film as far as I'm concerned and uh, both thoughtful engaging absorbing and uh, entertaining as I just a quick personal story I remember like I said seeing this at the McDade Mall movie theater in the summer of 1975 when I was between sixth and seventh grades I went from some with some friends who were twins uh, David and Peggy Lilly if either of you are listening uh, how you doing and so here we are 11 year olds three 11 year olds and David and I are cowering in our seats, you know, that head when the scene pops out of the bottom of the boat, you know, it was like, oh, my God, you know, covering our eyes, all that sort of stuff. I don't think Peggy blinked through the whole movie. So uh, Peggy was much more of a man at 11 years old than David and I ever were. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. 
At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It's currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. The next movie is 1981's Raiders of the Lost Ark. TJ, tell us about Raiders. Yeah, Raiders has been retroactively renamed as Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it was originally yeah. just called Raiders, and that's that's how I continue to think of it and probably always will. So yes, this is about Indiana Jones. I can't imagine there's anybody watching or listening to this that is not familiar with Indiana Jones, but I'll repeat it anyway. Indiana Jones is a professor of archaeology at an unnamed university in San Francisco, and he has a sideline as a globe-trotting adventurer and a recoverer of rare antiquities. So the movie opens with him in South America in 1936, recovering a golden idol from uh, an indigenous Hobito temple. And there's all kinds of booby traps on the way in and on the way out. And the temple collapses and famously he gets chased by a boulder. And then the idol is stolen from him by his rival archaeologist, René Belloc, a corrupt Frenchman. And then he has to run for his life and barely gets away. And as he gets away, swing on a vine to splash into the water to reach the seaplane that will take him to safety, we hear the famous Indiana Jones fanfare. And the implication of this opening scene is this is just what his life is like. He's always going and doing these things. He's been everywhere. He has friends everywhere. He has the resources. He's got the knowledge. He's got the power in his body. He's got everything to run around the globe and do this and then come back and teach a class seemingly just the next day, like everything's normal. So he also, his weapons are a handgun and a bullwhip and his fists. What we see multiple times in the movie are him fist fighting quite often multiple assailants and winding up for about five years before actually delivering the punch. <laughs> it's kind of amazing that nobody sees these punches coming and dodges them in any way. So he gets hired by the U.S. Secret Service to investigate the Nazi search for the Ark of the Covenant from the Old Testament, which leads him variously to Nepal, Egypt, and eventually a small Greek island. There is a love story with Marion, the daughter of his late mentor. And there's, the, like I said, the rivalry with his nemesis, Belloc, who's working for the Nazis, trying to get the Ark of the Covenant. And there are many, many, many incredible heart-pumping action scenes leading up to the resolution where the Ark is opened and the Nazis' heads melt and explode, and Indy, because of his knowledge and integrity, knows not to look at the Ark. And that's what saves him and his love interest, Marion, and it's brought back to the United States, and the Ark is then taken by the United States Secret Service, sealed up in a crate, and put in a warehouse of seemingly infinite size to then perhaps be investigated at some point in the future. And then the Indiana Jones fanfare plays again triumphantly as the credits roll, and as audience after audience sees this, the audience bursts into applause, including me when I saw this in the theater when I was six years old, brought to it by my father, and could not have been more excited. This movie spawned three sequels of progressively diminishing quality and popularity. And I would rank this, perhaps because of my personal experience seeing it when I was a kid, as the one to see. I think this is a well-nigh perfect film, and I enjoyed the hell out of watching it again. And we'll continue to watch this many, many times, I'm sure. 
it was also sort of a remake. I mean, it was really based on those episodic adventures that they used to show in theaters in the 1930s and 40s. They hewed really close to that formula and knew what they were doing. Cliffhanger after cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah. And Harrison Ford, who is, in my experience, a one, plays a kind of seven-ish character, but then the one-ishness is still in there. He did the same thing with the Star Wars movies, too, I thought, where it was sort of written like a seven and presented like a seven, but then he has this extra gravitas. Played by yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he really likes to point and scold. That's a big thing you see him do a lot in his movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I imagine Indiana Jones would come off really different if it was cast with an actual seven, like Chris Pratt or Ryan Reynolds or Robert Downey Jr. Mm-hmm. Who, yeah, you know, did. all three of whom do action movies now, and you know they're wisecracking, and there's a lightness to them, even though there's also a there's a lightness a, a heroism yeah. to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would alter the it would alter the film. So it's interesting there because it goes to show you how movies are different from real life, right? I mean, enneagram types are a real thing, okay? And when we see people, they tend to be fairly consistent with their enneagram types, but to make a movie. Sometimes you need to add a little something to it, right? Because a movie that was just real life would be nothing but a documentary, and nobody really wants to watch that, that you know, unless it's you know a good documentary. But who wants to, you know? Hitchcock said movies are just like real life, but with the boring parts cut out. There you go. There you go. And sometimes we need to, you know, in order to get those boring parts out, add a little something to it. So we often see this. And I, what I appreciate about how you come to this, Tom, is that you say, yeah, well, you know, it's kind of this and kind of that, but you have these different factors in, right? A movie is a collaborative process, okay? So you have the actor who's going to bring their temperament to it. You have the character as written on the page. You have the director who's adding things. You have the editors who do things and so forth. So, you know, so certainly not every movie character is a clear Enneagram type, uh, for sure. And this is a good example of one, right? You know, I don't think that if Indiana Jones didn't have that quality of the seven-ishness and the, you know, the impulsive seeking adventure sort of thing grounded by that one-ish gravitas, it wouldn't have been as memorable of character, okay? Might have been more real, like, you know, more like real life, but it wouldn't have been nearly Yeah, there'd be a contradiction in the way he was, that, and there is a contradiction that keeps you paying attention. Yes, right. A couple of things. So uh, to your point about the sort of casting what-ifs, TJ, a lot of different people were considered for the Indiana Jones role. Some really interesting ones. Uh, Bill Murray was considered. Uh, Imagine that role with any of these characters. Nick Nolte, Steve Martin, (laughs) Chevy Chase, (laughs) Tim Matheson, uh, Nick Mancuso, Peter Coyote, Jack Nicholson, Jeff Bridges, and Harry Hamlin, and most famously, Tom Mm -hmm. Selleck. And in fact, Tom Selleck was the one that they wanted, but he had been signed to do Magnum P.I. at the time. And the producer said, well, wait a minute, if Spielberg and uh, George Lucas want him, we're on to something and no way we're letting him out of his contract. But even so much as I you know, appreciate Tom Selleck and think Magnum P.I. was one of the great 
TV shows and characters. He ain't no Indiana Jones, right? And when he did try to make one of those movies, it failed miserably. I forget even what it was called, right? Quickly Down Under, maybe? So, uh, no, I think Harrison Ford was perfect for the role, capturing those sort of things. And I'll tell you something, TJ, to your point about it being the, you know, the, the one you would pick over. Look, for me, these two are right up there. The one thing I will say, because I saw this again in the theater in 1981 when it came out, it was, uh, I think, just out of high school, and it was absolutely a thrill a minute, okay? Compared to the movies of today, it moves a bit slower, right? I've had a hard time getting my kids to sit through Raiders of the Lost Ark because they're used to the Marvel pace of, you know, constant cutting and moving. And even though, particularly for its time, Raiders was breakneck, you know, Flash Gordon, Errol Flynn, you know, brought to the big screen in a big way, it feels a little bit slower now than it did by comparison. But I agree with you. I loved every minute of it and, you know, really uh, sat with it. So tell us more about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Tom, tell us your thoughts on Raiders. Uh, well, I was just remembering there's a scene where there's a, I don't know what you would call him, but he's Arab and he's a mighty warrior and he's got a big sword and he whips it out and they're going to go at it and Harrison Ford shoots him. And the reason he did that, apparently, was because he had the flu. They needed to resolve the scene so he could go back to his trailer and sleep. I don't know, you know, making movies is uh, problem-solving and decision-making and not really glamorous in the doing of it. But uh, the other thing Spielberg has said several times in interviews is that movies are dreams, and I think that's kind of a good way to approach it or a good way to think about it, and especially his movies. You know, they're, they're dreams, and then you have to integrate them so that there aren't plot holes and, you know, the tempo's right and whatnot. Shooting the Swordsman is yeah. a great improvisatory flourish. You know, a lot like I was saying before in reference to Jaws. It was a solution to a problem, and it's one of the most famous moments in the movie. Yeah. I remember getting a yes. huge laugh and a huge right. round of applause from the audience when it happened. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and my understanding of that story is that most of the cast and crew had dysentery. They were filming in Tunisia mm -hmm. and everybody got sick except for Spielberg. And the reason Spielberg did not get sick is because he had taken his own food to the shoot and it was mostly cans of spaghettios. So he had been eating and surviving off of SpaghettiOs rather than the local food and thus did not get dysentery. That's, so. that's like the, Af <laughs> the African queen. They filmed in Africa. Mm. Everybody got sick except for Humphrey Bogart and yeah. John Houston, who were both extreme alcoholics. So any bugs that were in their system got ah. killed by the whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's hope yet. All right. <laughs> All right. Very interesting. But I certainly agree again, you know, Indiana Jones is sort of a seven-ish character, but also the, just the pace of the movie. I mean, this is just excitement from start to beginning. This is just a joyful movie as far as I'm concerned, right? It's fun. You know, it's edge of your seat, thrill of the minute. You never really feel like, you know, scared like you might in Jaws or something, right? You're just, you know, oh, how's he going to get out of this? You know, this is so much fun. And, the, you know, you could see the, the fun they're having 
they seem to be having making the movie right with just all the adventures and all the crazy situations and how they get out of them and so forth so for me again a very seven-ish movie no computer graphics either yeah actually that's something i had in my notes this is one of the last great movies where the stunt work is just so much fun right i mean you can see you know, and I think, you know, there's tales about Harrison Ford breaking ribs and that sort of thing, doing some stunts. The, the only CGI is at the end, you know, when the faces melt and all that sort of stuff. There's, a, you know, a couple of other, you know, little bits like that. But this is a real, you know, kind of movie. In, in yeah, a way. I, I agree. And at the end, uh, where they show the warehouse with the UFOs stored in it, that's a matte painting. That's before computers also. Right. Uh, interesting. I was wondering about that. Just to build on what you said just there, I just want to give a shout out to a documentary that's coming out in a few months that I know when I'm working with the producer, it's called Hollywood Bulldogs, The Rise and Falls of the Great British Stuntman. And it interviews a number of different famous stuntmen, one of whom is Vic Armstrong, who was Harrison Ford's double. Mm-hmm. He actually had three doubles in the Indiana Jones movies, but Vic Armstrong was prominent among them. And uh, features heavily in the movie and the documentary is just amazing it's a thrill ride in and of itself anyway uh what i was saying before is yeah raiders of the lost ark has all this good stuff to thrill you like there's ancient artifacts there's booby traps that are hundreds or even thousands of years old that still work perfectly there's an evil monkey spy and his <laughs> spy master wears an eye patch and rides a motorcycle There's world travel, you know, much of it filmed on location. There's chase after chase. There's fight after fight, including fire. There's gunplay, but without it just being a big shooting festival. In the scene when Indy and Marion are trapped in the Well of Souls with all of the snakes, so that became a convention in the Anna Jones movie. There's always got to be a lot of something creepy and Mm -hmm. crawling. At one point, as if that isn't enough, they get into another chamber of the Well of Souls, and what's in there? Mummies. And the way it's filmed and the way the soundtrack is done, the mummies are... Even though they're inanimate, they're falling on Marion. There's all these screaming noises, and their hands are are reaching. And it's just, ah, there's just more and more stuff. In in the famous truck scene, which is one of my favorite scenes in any movie, the truck chase strongly influenced the way I played with my toys when I was a kid. Because I I didn't have any Indiana Jones toys, but I would make my Star Wars G.I. Joe action figures have chases with each other where somebody would jump from one vehicle to another or, or punching one guy and throwing them under the truck and things like that. Anyway, at one point in that chase, Indy's behind the wheel of the truck, and he swerves against one of the Nazi cars, and it just goes off the road. And where does it go? It plummets off a massive cliff that's seemingly there out of nowhere. They're in the middle of the desert, but suddenly they're at the edge of this massive cliff that's so steep and long you can't even see the bottom. And then there's a really satisfying death for the Nazi who throws Indy under the truck. Indy ends up reversing that. So it's just one thing after another. Like, it just it never ends. There was a quote on a book by Stephen Fry, who I think is a seven as well, where the critic said, with every sentence in this book, you can feel the force of Fry's desire to please you, the reader. And I think that applies to Spielberg, particularly in this movie. Every single scene is like, what else can we get? What else can we put in here? How can we ratchet up the thrills? And they succeed. Applies to most of his movies, that does. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Do you mean that that desire to please, Tom? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... Or the ratcheting it up part. He's got his audience in mind when he's making films. That seems obvious. And, yeah, I mean, the proof is the degree of success that he's had. Right. 
Yeah, I, that, that's another thing I see in a lot of sevens is to or this desire to please, right? This desire to make people feel good and feel happy. And it comes mm-hmm. from this legitimate place. Like, if you're happy, I'm happy, right? But if I know you're not happy, then I can't be happy. So I need to make you happy. Or if you're, if you're happy, I'm not unhappy. <laughs> there you go, right. All right, good. Let's see a couple more things about Indiana Jones. So, TJ, you mentioned the um, you know the globe trotting nature of this. I think I saw that there were 180 filming locations on this. Right, Egypt was not one of them. It's funny when they were in the Well of Souls, having been to Egypt a number of times and been to some of these locations, all I could think of this time when he was knocking over that statue to get out of the Well of Souls was, no, 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 please don't destroy that statue, you know, but I guess it's okay, you know, for that. Also, apparently, R2-D2 and C-3PO were amongst the hieroglyphics in that scene. You know, apparently you can see if if you look and know to look for it. One more thing about the iconic nature of the Indiana Jones character, TJ, you made a point about this, about, you know, who doesn't know who Indiana Jones is. And there was a quote in a magazine called Film Frenzy that one of the all-time greats, Harrison Ford, is perfection plus as Indiana Jones. So iconic a character that the American Film Institute cited him as the second greatest movie hero of all time, just under Atticus Fitch and just above James Bond. So high company there. I I agree. One of the great characters, and has anybody ever looked cooler in a hat than uh, Harrison Ford in Indiana? A fedora. Not a look that everybody could pull. Yeah. All right, let's see. It was on the filming of Raiders of the Lost Ark that Spielberg and Harrison Ford's wife got together to start writing E.T., interestingly enough, which uh, Spielberg filmed, I think, right after Raiders, but soon yeah, it came out the very next year. A couple other points. Um, one of them, something I mentioned before, is you know, sevens are often exaggerators just for the sake of telling a good story. And they might be conscious of it. They might have you know, believed their own mythologizing. But there's a number of things like that in this. In the briefing, when the U.S. Secret Service guys send Indy, or you know, when they're just talking about what the Ark is, there's blatantly false claims about the Ark. You know, they say that the Ark has... You know, the Bible speaks of the Ark laying waste to mountains and entire regions. It doesn't. Yeah, it absolutely it doesn't. doesn't. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, you'd once sent me a link to a McSweeney's article where it's written from the point of view of the dean of the college where Indiana Jones teaches about, <laughs> about <laughs> and it really lays waste to the notion that this man is an archaeologist in any way whatsoever. And, that, you know, there's such a vast distance between what he does in that movie and what archaeology actually is which is very slow and patient and, as you said, respectful of something like an ancient statue or booby traps that still work thousands of years later. That would probably be much greater in value than a little gold idol in an old temple. Uh, There's also snakes in a sealed chamber that's been sealed for thousands of years. (laughs) What do they eat? There's the fact that they, they, they dig for that chamber right in front of the setting sun. And, you know, he gets out of his Arab gear and puts on his iconic hat right in front of the setting sun in front of all of the Nazis. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny, but you know what? You're kind of a killjoy if you even ask these questions. Yeah, and while yeah. you're watching it, you can't. There's no time to. You're just so caught up in right. the thrill. Right. That pretty much mimics the source material, too, or at least the source inspiration, which is those short cliffhangers from the 1930s. Right. Right. 
another thing right. is there's a lot of great moments of humor. You know, Spielberg's only directed one comedy in his career, which was a complete flop in 1941, mm -hmm. which he didn't like it as he was directing it. He knew he'd made a bad choice making that movie. And stereotypically, you'd think a seven would be a director of exclusively of comedies. But he just quickly realized, no, that's not my thing. And yet there are genuinely funny moments throughout the movie. So there's, you know, the evil monkey who at one point does a Nazi salute, which I've found out with a little bit of digging. It took about 50 takes to get the monkey to do just the right gesture. And they had to get a professional cartoon voice guy to do the, the monkey voice to say something that sounded like Zig Heil. Or there's the shooting the swordsman, or there's Indy's student who's painted the words I love you on her eyelids. Or there's the scene when they're on the boat and Indy's all beaten and Marion flips the mirror around and it whacks him in the face and it does this loud bellow, which you can see, you know, the camera shoots from outside the ship. So theoretically yeah, right, you can hear this right. for miles. And then she pokes around the mirror and says, what'd you say? Like there's <laughs> many moments like that that are still funny today that pepper right. the, the entire movie and give it this tone of, you know, it's just like, here's another fun thing and here's another fun one, just in case you're too scared. Yeah, for me, this is kind of the the most sevenish of the movies, right? That we're talking about today. It just carries that spirit in with it. I also thought an observation I had watching it this time was at the end the way they protect themselves from the lightning bolts and all that coming out of the arc is just to close their eyes, right? Don't look, Marion, which to me felt very sevenish, right? You know, there's bad stuff out there. Just don't look. It'll be fine. You know, if, if you just look away, everything will be okay. You know, if you just put your head in the sand, if you just go, you know, go out for ice cream, everything's going to be great. So I, I thought that tied it up, you know, kind of wrapped up the dilemma of the seven in a really nice way. The Nazi is melting, but don't look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be fine. Yeah. You know. yeah. We're not melting. Well, yeah. That guy's head exploded, but we're yeah, all right. Or whatever. He's yeah. a Nazi. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think probably the last great Nazi movie, too, in, in a way. So, anyway, but one other point. Yeah, what the heck was in all those other boxes in the warehouse is what I want to know, right? If the Ark of the Covenant is just one more box among these thousands, what else do we have in that room? I'd love to get in there at some point. Implying right. story after story and adventure after adventure. Exactly. Off to infinity. Exactly. You've been listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, which is produced and edited by Seth Creekmore and is part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. Don't forget to go online and support the podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. See you next time.